This is Morning Edition on NHPR. I'm Rick Ganling, and it's time for the New Hampshire News Recap. Let's get into this week's top headlines. The Attorney General's Office has released the second half of the so-called Lori List, which includes the names of police officers with possible credibility issues. Nancy West is the founder of the New Hampshire Center for Public Interest Journalism. She's been reporting on the Lori List now for many years, and she joins us now. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning, Rick. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, Nancy, part of the the Lori List was made public for the first time back in December. This week, the Attorney General released the second half of that list. Uh, Did you recognize any names? Anything surprise you? Yeah, there were. um, What surprised me was the number of police chiefs, former police chiefs on the list. There were four names. One of them was John Susing, the former chief of the Nashua Police Department. And there were chiefs from former chiefs from Newport, Springfield, and another one from Ware. Now that surprised me because police chiefs are responsible for turning over the names of their own officers who deserve to be on the lorry list. So one wonders what kind of incentive they have to turn over those names when they see what a pain it can be and how detrimental it can be to a police officer's career. This isn't really a full list, either, is it, Nancy? I mean, there there are almost 100 names that have been blacked out. Why are there so many redactions? Well, the ones that are blacked out still, they have either filed a lawsuit to get off the list or the attorney general's office has been unable to locate them, to, to, to alert them that under a new law, they now have the opportunity to file a lawsuit to get their names off the list before they're made public. These names were kept confidential for decades. So this is quite new to get any of the names, but we still have 91 that are fully redacted. And I believe about 73 of those have filed lawsuits. And yet there's another 30 names who have been removed under another process through a protocol at the attorney general's office. That's also a confidential process. So we'll never know what those, who those 30 people were. Now it's really important for the public to know what their police officers or former police officers have been doing, but it's even more important for criminal defendants who may have a right to seek a new trial if they were not alerted to the fact that a testifying police officer against them had sustained discipline in their personnel file. Um, police personnel files are confidential, so they would have no way of knowing if their names weren't disclosed before trial. And I think those are the rights that um, really need to be looked at a little bit more closely. And Well, we really don't know too much about any of this these, these names anyway. We're only getting a one or two word description of, of the, 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 you know, the, what's the, what the issue and credibility is as well. Right. Very little. And some... Some just say unknown, like we don't even get a basic truthfulness or some other um, excessive force could be one of the categories. And some just say unknown. So what's the what use is it to uh, someone who a criminal defendant who is defending themselves in court? What can they do with this information? Well, what the attorney general's office has told me is they would have to file in court to get some sort of relief and possibly a hearing to determine whether that evidence that was withheld from them 
would have made a difference in the outcome of their trial. I mean, just because an officer is on the list and had testified at their trial, <clears throat> there may have been other overwhelming evidence that wouldn't, would have shown that it, it really wouldn't have made a difference in, their, in the outcome of their trial. But they have the right to at least try that and let a judge decide. Mm -hmm. I know you've been covering the Lori list for many years. Um, what's it like to have this, this information now after this this long battle? Well, it's it's the information we don't have after ten years of reporting. And there, you know, the other news outlets, not just me, but there's been great reporting. New Hampshire Public Radio has been doing a great job as well. And you know, Nashua Telegraph, Seacoast Papers, the Keen Sentinel, Union Leader. After 10 years of every all of this reporting, it's what we don't know that really um, is coming out in dribs and drabs. That's why New Hampshire Center for Public Interest Journalism, we're still in court trying to get the full list of 281 names that were redacted when we filed suit three years ago. That case still remains in Hillsborough County Superior Court South. So we're hoping to get a hearing on that and try to get the full complete list with um, at least of the all of the names, even though there is, as you say, limited information about what these officers did to get on the list. So what do you think this means, Nancy, going forward for police accountability in New Hampshire? Um, I don't think this adds a whole lot to uh, the credibility of police officers going forward because this is not, certainly not a full transparent list. And when that list is fully transparent, I think that will really get some, increase the credibility of police officers statewide. Nancy West is the founder of the New Hampshire Center for Public Interest Journalism. Thanks so much for joining us, Nancy. Thank you for having me, Rick. By the way, you can find more of her work at indepthnh.org. And this is Morning Edition on NHPR. We're recapping this week's news. What questions do you have about what's going on in the state? You can always email us at voices at nhpr.org. Now, joining us to talk about the latest news on the education beat is New Hampshire Bulletin reporter Ethan DeWitt. Good morning, Ethan. Welcome back. Glad to be here. Ethan, the state of New Hampshire responded to a lawsuit this week over a law that prohibits certain kinds of teaching on racism, sexism, and oppression in schools. Remind us who was involved in that lawsuit and, and why, what they're alleging. Sure. So this lawsuit was brought, there were two lawsuits actually, brought within a week of each other in December by two of the biggest uh, teachers unions in the state, the American Federation of Teachers in New Hampshire and the National Education Association of New Hampshire. Um, and the ACLU has also joined in on, on the lawsuits as well. Um, the lawsuits allege that the law that was passed last year, which uh, is sometimes called the divisive concepts law, sometimes called the freedom from discrimination law, kind of depending on which side you're talking to, that that law um, is overly vague and has had a, quote, chilling effect on teachers. And just to uh, remind listeners, this is the law that bars public school staff and public employees from a number of teachings, including that people of one race, gender identifying class are inherently superior or inferior to another class, that uh, one person of one class is inherently racist or oppressive against another class, or that um, people of different classes should receive different treatment from other classes. Um, and supporters say that it prevents students from being targeted as oppressors 
um, for just by dint of their race or gender, um, but opponents, including the teachers, can say that it squelches nuanced conversations on privilege, oppression, and bias. And in these lawsuits, the teachers are arguing that because there are professional consequences to teachers who violate this, um, which could include losing their teaching license, that the law is so vague that teachers are now avoiding topics entirely so as to avoid the potential of professional consequences. And they're arguing that that um, is a, unconstitutional, that there's, yeah. a, there's a prohibition against unconstitutionally vague laws. And now the state is asking a federal court to dismiss the lawsuit. So what's their argument? So the state, we finally saw their argument um, this week, and they're essentially arguing um, first that uh, freedom of speech doesn't apply to teachers um, because it doesn't apply to people in the course of their job. They pointed to um, previous case law that has suggested that the, um, you know, the First Amendment is not absolute when it comes to uh, teaching in classrooms, that teachers can be uh, limited in what they're allowed to teach. The second thing that the state is arguing is that the law is not actually vague. Um, they've pointed to guidance that has been put out by the Department of Justice after pressure from unions all throughout last year that they say clears up what topics are allowed and what aren't allowed. And they say that the um, guidance has made it clear that some of the concerns um, that certain areas of history might not be able to be taught or that, uh, you know, some nuanced conversations might not be able to be had, that uh, the guidance makes it clear that those conversations can happen, um, but it kind of draws the limits of, of you know, where a conversation could go. Yeah. Um, unions and teachers uh, obviously disagree with this. Now, Ethan, I, I, I want to, I, I know there's several different things that could happen with this. What are the possible outcomes for this case moving forward? What do you think is going to come from this? Well, one of the state's arguments this week is that this actually isn't proper for a federal court to decide. So this this has been filed in the U.S. District Court of New Hampshire in Concord. That court has been historically more favorable uh, to certain challenges in recent years. Um, but the state is arguing that because this is a matter of uh, you know state law, that there is actually no jurisdiction for the federal court here. Um, so we'll see what that court decides. If that court decides that we're not the ones who should be deciding this, they might send it to the New Hampshire Supreme Court, um, or they they might decide to take it on and, and issue a ruling, in which case it could be appealed up to the U.S. Court of Appeals. And this is that's a process that would take you know at least a year or two yeah. um, to play out. Either way, this probably is won't be the end of it. Right. Yeah. Now, Ethan, I know you also reported this week that New Hampshire's Education Freedom Account program continues to see a high level of engagement, higher than than many were really expecting. Can you remind listeners about how that program works briefly? Sure. So this is a program that allows qualifying families to access state education grants that would normally go to their public schools, but um, would allow parents to apply for this and use uh, these annual grants. They're about $4,600 a year towards uh, private school tuition, online courses, homeschooling materials, and other educational expenses. And is the program, it's still fairly new. What are you actually seeing so far in the numbers? Who is actually participating? Sure. So there's been about 1,800 students that have signed up. And as of March 1st, according to the latest numbers, 
Um, it's uh, there's actually um, a, a very um, small number of those are actually coming from public schools. The way that New Hampshire designed its programs, you can come from a public school or you can already be in private school or homeschooled as long as you are under the income requirement, which is about $79,000 for a family of four. Um, then you can access these funds. So New Hampshire is one of the most expansive programs in the country because of that. Many programs have, are limited to students who are already in public school. So of the uh, 1,800 students who are enrolled in the program, um, just 204 of those 1,800 students actually left a public school the year before. The rest of them were not attending public school before they took on these um, education freedom accounts. And so it's, a, it's sort of an interesting, people were looking at the public school aspect, but actually a lot more of them are outside of the public school. Yeah, system. and I'm wondering about lawmakers concerned about costs here? Um, certainly, Democrats have raised concerns about costs. Right now, the program has um, cost the state about $8 million. That's obviously going to increase. Um, again, as I mentioned, we're one of the most expansive states because we allow anybody who was previously homeschooled or previously in private school to use these funds. And so Democrats are arguing that you know, this is going to just balloon year after year since once a student enters this program, they can stay in the program until they graduate high school or they turn 21. Um, and so there, there will be kids who are kind of grandfathered in, yeah. if you will, um, over the years. That's the argument from Democrats. Republicans say we have flush revenues right now. The $8 million has not made a dent uh, yet at all. Um, and they're not concerned about that. Okay. Um, so we'll see how that plays out in the years to come. We will have to watch it and, and we'll ask for, for uh, your reporting on it as well as we go forward. New Hampshire Bulletin's Ethan DeWitt. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You can find more of his work at NewHampshireBulletin.com. And if you missed any part of today's segment or if you want to catch up on previous recaps, you can find the New Hampshire News Recap wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'll be here next Friday with more top headlines. I'm Rick Ganley. This is NHPR.